Thanks so much for listening to the Clifton Church of Christ sermon podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen, and we hope if ever you're in Clifton, Texas, you'll stop by and say hello. We hope you enjoy this sermon. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you all. Um, I uh, started last week, and I I failed to give the appropriate credit, but um, we've been going through this series on the powerful and the powerless, and I actually taught a series like this Uh, a few years ago when I was a youth minister, and between then and now, I remember reading an article one time by Tim Keller that talked about God's justice and the way God's heart has justice for those who are powerless and those who are in need, and I just remember thinking, I've got to incorporate this the next time I teach this. And so, last week, whenever we talked about God's radical generosity as part of his character as a just God, as being a God of being generous to people, I didn't do a good enough job of making sure I gave credit to the fact that the four sermons, his generosity, and this week talking about God's equality of all people, I wanted to make sure I give credit to, uh, to Tim Keller's article for kind of pointing me towards these ideas. Now I'm going to do something. I hope this is a, uh, I hope you've maybe heard this before, but I'm going to read something for you and I, I hope you recognize what I'm reading from. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, any of y'all ever heard that before? That comes from our Declaration of Independence, signed July 4th, 1776. And I'm going to argue with it just a little. You ready? Um... In this phrase, it says that it is self-evident that all men are created equal. And the argument that I want to make is that if you dropped someone down on earth at any point in human history, and they looked around, I don't think it would be self-evident that all people are created equally. You with me? I think that it is only people who have a lens of God and God's way he sees the world that can believe that all people are created equal. Does that make any sense? I'm not, trying to, uh, I'm not trying to say that the people who wrote this are wrong. What I'm trying to say is they are allowed to say that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator to certain unalienable rights, but I don't think it's self-evident. It is only people who have spent time in God's Word that are able to come to that conclusion. So the main thing we're going to talk about today is the fact that part of God being a just God is that unlike everything that the world tells us, we believe that all people are equal no matter their race or class. And then that idea is not some self-evident truth. It is only a truth that comes from people who believe that God is true. Okay? All of human history points to the truth that most people believe that they are superior to others or that some people are superior to others. The idea that every human had equal dignity and worth was incredibly foreign to most civilizations throughout most history. Aristotle, famous philosopher, he's actually infamously said one time that he believed some races and nationalities were born to be slaves from the get-go. That's Aristotle, one of the wisest people in the world. Cultures, both present and ancient, totally lacked any sense that the poor and the weak might have the slightest intrinsic value. 
You talk to many city commissioners that aren't Christian, and you say, what do you think about having our homeless population here in town? To them, they are the biggest inconvenience in the entire world. Where are we going to put these people? Oh, it's ruining our, the value of our homes, our cities, our communities. Oh, where are we going to, how can we get these people migrated out of here? The idea that someone would bring any value that's in that situation is completely foreign. Uh, there's this famous thing that is often compared to the Ten Commandments. The Babylonians had this thing called the Code of Hammurabi. Okay, I know you've probably never heard of that before. But it's this, this statue that was found in Babylon forever ago that basically has a lot of similar codes that sound an awful lot like some of the codes we have in the Ten Commandments. But there's differences. And one of the examples is that in this Code of Hammurabi, it says things like, if you're a person from the upper class and you murder someone from the lower class, your punishment is that you have to pay a financial fine. But if you're someone from the lower class and you even steal from someone from the upper class, your penalty is death. Clearly, the idea that people are created equal is not self-evident, in my opinion. It is self-evident that people are not created equal. It is only, in my opinion, through trusting what God says that we see that all people are created equal. There's this, uh, I have two more analogies uh, throughout history, but this became more famous that it was documented during kind of the Roman Empire, but it was very common that if a family had a daughter and they didn't want that child, they would just leave it abandoned in the city, hoping that someone might take it or that it just dies because a daughter didn't bring the same value to the family that a son would. A son would be someone that could possibly be an heir. A son would be someone that could possibly bring power and wealth. And a daughter was just a, a financial liability. And so they would just leave them out in the, in the city. And you know who would go and would adopt those orphans? People that heard their God tell them, all people are created equal. We need to take care of the widow, the orphan, the immigrant. You with me? I, uh, there's a, a scene uh, in one of my, a movie I really like, the movie A Time to Kill. How many of you are familiar with this movie, with Matthew McConaughey? There's this great scene where it's the final court case, and the movie is basically about these two guys, these two white men that, that rape and almost kill this little black girl. And the father of the black little girl kills one of those guys, I think maybe both of those guys, but he for sure kills one of those guys and he's on trial for murder. And the lawyer at the end basically tells the, the jury to close their eyes and he recounts what happened to the little girl. Talks about everything, talks about them tying her up and, and urinating on her, talks about all the things that they did to her. And then at the very end he says, <clears throat> now I want you to imagine that she was a white girl and all the jury opens their eyes real big. And what he's done is he's said, if you're listening and you're, you don't see white people and black people as equal, then there's part of you that are, is maybe thinking, well, that's a bummer that that happened. But then the second that you hear it's a white girl, you think, oh man, I, you can't do that to her. And that's if you don't see, or if the people listening were raised in a setting where they did not see colored people and white people as equals. And yet we see throughout scripture that over and over again, God shows that no matter what your class is, no matter what your wealth is, no matter what your ethnicity is, your nationality is, that you are created equal. And so I'm going to talk about a couple examples of where we see in Scripture. And, and I'm, the point I'm really trying to get across is, if you grow up in church your whole life, 
you might at some level think, yeah, I mean, the Bible's pretty clear. We're supposed to love everybody. Everybody's equal. But that is not something that our world actually believes. And you can talk to a lot of people in our world who say they believe that, but our actions do not demonstrate that we believe that. Throughout time, powerful people have had no problem treating powerless people as less than human to them. Does that make sense? Okay, so let's go to the first, uh, the first uh, topic or first thing we're going to cover. And this, I think, is the foundation for this whole idea of God seeing all people as created equal. If you want to turn in your Bibles or follow along on the screen, in Genesis 1, on the very first pages of our Bible, starting in verse 27 or 26, then God said, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then in Proverbs 22, 2, it says, Rich and poor have this one thing in common. The Lord is the, master, is the maker of them all. So the first topic and the first thing, if you're a note taker, is when we understand the idea that God sees all people as equal, it is because we are all made in the image of God. Uh, this picture here, I don't know if any of you, I, I don't know much about violins, but I do know that there's a famous person who makes violins named Antonio Stradivari. Have any of you ever heard of a Stradivari violin? Okay, I guess some people nodding. Some, this, this violin, these violins were made something like 300 years ago by this famous guy. And most of them nowadays, if you were to try and buy one, would sell for around $16 million. And you're looking at that and you're probably thinking, I don't know, surely, uh, surely I could get a, a, a violin that's fairly comparable that's maybe a million. You know, that still seems crazy. Um, how many of you are big car people? Big, anybody a big... I know, I know everyone's, I'm Ford or I'm Chevy or whatever, but uh, y'all know the... Uh, Carol Shelby, the famous guy who made Mustangs. I want you to imagine if I put a Mustang out in the parking lot and then I put a, a Mustang that was made by Carol Shelby. How much more do you think that that Carol Shelby Mustang, if I said that he, it would, it would be obscene how expensive that would be. How many of you have seen the movie Sandlot before? Anybody? Classic movie. There's that scene where they're playing baseball and that they lose one, and he's like, I've got, a, I've got an extra baseball. He goes and gets the baseball his dad has in his office that's signed by somebody. You know, and they're playing, and they hit a home run, and it goes over the fence. He's like, oh, man, we got to get that back. It's signed by, and they're like, well, who signed it? He said, some, some lady, Baby Ruthie, baby, <laughs> baby Ruth. And all the boys are like, Babe Ruth. And they're willing to sacrifice their lives to try and get over the fence to get this baseball signed by Babe Ruth. So anyway. There are certain things that, for some reason, if, you were to, if I were to go to the store, I bet I could buy a violin for maybe a couple hundred bucks. But if it's made by Antonio Stradivari, it's worth $16 million. And I'm using this analogy to say that we place immense value on things that are made or associated with famous people. And how much more should we put immense value on human beings who are made in the image of God? When we encounter people, often we do this thing where when we meet people uh, or, or we're walking along and we see people around us, all we see them as, and I'm guilty of this as anybody, all we see them as as either a, a way to help me get to where I'm going or an obstacle for where I'm going. 
Whenever I'm going through the store and I see someone in the, in the aisle, I don't, I don't think to myself, that is an image bearer of God. I just think that's someone in the aisle. And I get it. I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to do that. But whenever we encounter people and we see them and their brokenness, often it's easy for us to Im- immediately associate that person with the thing that we see wrong with them, okay? If I... I mean, y'all, y'all know how this works. Somebody moves into Clifton, they move into the house, you're saying hi to them, and they, they're like, oh yeah, I know such and such. And they're like, oh yeah, them. Man, they've been married like six times, you know? And that's how you know them. Or, oh man, their family is crazy. That's how you know them. Or, oh yeah, can you believe that, yeah, you don't know this, but blah, blah, blah. And, and we, the thing that we identify people with is that crazy thing about them, that broken thing about them, that bad thing about them. And yet, the thing that I think is part of the secret to how God looks at us and the secret to how we are supposed to be image bearers of God and, and continuing this idea of God's radical equality with all people is that when we look at anyone, no matter where they come from, no matter what we associate with them, like for, I'm going to use an example. I guarantee you if a guy came in here right now with dark skin and a turban on, your assumption about them would be that they might be Muslim. And yet, I want your assumption about them to be, and God wants your assumption to be about them, that they are an image bearer of God. Okay? Every person you encounter. If you see someone that's wearing clothes that you think, oh, I know that person. That person's a a drug addict. That person's a homeless person. Don't let that be the first thing you see. Let the first thing you see be the first thing that God sees, which is, this is my child, an image bearer of me, God sees the heart. He doesn't see the other things. Okay, second topic. In Deuteronomy 16, 19, it says, You shall show no partiality, no favoritism, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Why would Deuteronomy care about people not accepting bribes? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because accepting bribes is something that only powerful people can give you. Powerless people, poor people can't bribe anybody. You with me? So if you're constantly like, oh, well, this person gave me a bribe, I'll help them out. Then what you are doing is you are being, whether you realize it or not, you are helping out the people that have stuff and not able to help the people that don't have stuff. I I think part of the way politics works, even though I don't really know much, is that if certain powerful organizations want certain politicians to make policies that help them out, what do you think they do? They find ways to bribe them so that they're going to help out their company or their agenda. You know who doesn't have the ability to bribe politicians? Poor people. They don't have any room to bribe. If I really want to get Bryce to do something and I'm like, hey Bryce, I happen to have these extra tickets to a Cowboys game in in the box suites and I was just wondering if you might be able to, you know, help Catherine get, you know, get accepted at your job or whatever. And he says, sure, then what I've just done is I've used my power to bribe him to do something. But there might be someone else who's just as qualified for the job who doesn't have a means and can't go to Bryce and say, I've got two Cowboys tickets. By the way, I can't say that to Bryce either. But, um, because I'd be, I'm just kidding. But uh, you get what I'm saying. Uh, and, And here I'm actually, I hope... I hope this doesn't take too long, but I am actually about to use the second half of this topic to talk about something that I think is one of our miss, one of, the, one of those scriptures that we probably misinterpret as much as any scripture. And so 
I apologize if something I'm about to read sounds completely contrary to something you've said about this, but I think it's valuable. In 1 Corinthians 11, and I'm going to skip around in here, but verses 17 through 34, we have a passage of scripture that we read all the time in here, and we don't necessarily know exactly what it's talking about. So in 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34, it says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Paul is saying, when y'all come together to have communion, it would be better for you to not have communion than to do it the way you're doing it. That's harsh. That's harsh. Hey, uh, Drew, it would be better for the whole church if you didn't preach than the way you're preaching right now. That would be harsh. And that's what Paul is saying to this church in Corinth. Uh, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. In verse 21, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, so eat, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This right here we really misinterpret a lot. We think that the Lord's Supper is a time where when we're supposed to come and examine ourselves, you're supposed to sit there and you're th supposed to think of everything, every sin you committed this week. Every time you got a little too angry at your spouse. Every time you were a little too... Uh, a little too greedy. Every time you decided to watch that movie that you probably shouldn't have watched. Every time the teenager goes and drinks a little too much or shouldn't be drinking, okay? You're supposed to come. You're supposed to think about those sins and then let God and Jesus forgive you of those. That is not what this is about. What Paul is saying is, is when he says you should examine yourselves, he means you should look around the room, not inside, not inwardly, you should look at each other, and you should see, am I creating any divisions in here? Let me keep reading, and I'm going to explain more. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So what's happening is, in Corinth, you have rich church members and poor church members. And the rich church members don't have jobs. And so they're getting to church, and they're starting the party early. They're getting the food ready. They're getting the drinks ready. They're drinking all the wine. They're drink, eating all the food. And all of it's gone before the poor people are able to get there. So the poor people aren't able to enjoy the feast, the Lord's Supper together. If, it, if you didn't know this, in the first century, this isn't how they did communion. They would meet and have a dinner together, a meal together. And what was happening is that the rich people weren't waiting on the poor people. And Paul is saying, when you do that, you are making, you are hurting God. You are hurting God more than you're helping. Because you are showing that there's these divisions among you. That you're not treating people equally. So next time you examine yourself before the Lord's Supper, this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to look around the room and you're supposed to think, have I treated my neighbors 
Have I treated Jason the way I should have treated Jason this week? Is there something that's separating any of us this week? Have I, have I in any way uh, shown division among us? Because when you come together, what this is about is about unity. And the people in Corinth have created a division, and the division is based on whether you have stuff, whether you have money, or whether you don't. And so the main point of this second one, when I quote Deuteronomy and 1 Corinthians is, clearly in the Bible it says, do not show favoritism. And the favoritism that was happening at the Lord's Supper was the fact that they were being prejudiced towards the poor people by being like, you know what, when they get here, they get here. They'll eat what they can eat. It would almost be like if we had two services, like a first service and a second service, and we had luncheon over there, and first service ate all the food before second service got over there. And, 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 and well, let's add to that. It would be like if first service was all the wealthy people and the ones that had all the best food, and second service was all the poor people. And whenever they got over there, the first service people were like, hey, we got some leftovers somewhere around here. I mean, uh, can anybody put together like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for these people? Yeah, we're going to be over here eating this delicious food that, you know, these steaks, okay? <clears throat> Last thing I'm going to say, and then we're going to be done, is that there's this passage in Luke where Jesus says, Luke 14, 12, Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. He's saying, if you did that, you're really not inviting anyone to be hospitable. You're inviting them so that they'll invite you back. I was inviting, I was asking Bryce if he wanted Cowboys tickets so that he would do something for me. I wasn't actually doing anything nice for him. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, although they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So I'm going to make a point now that I think if you want to argue with me about it, that's fine. I've been arguing with myself about it all week. And come to Wednesday night class. But the Bible, in my opinion, shows us do not show favoritism to anyone, but maybe show favoritism to the powerless. And if you're wondering, what does that mean? Wait, Drew, I thought you just got done preaching a sermon about how all people are created equal, so you shouldn't show favoritism to anybody. I see throughout Scripture with Jesus the way he treats the Samaritans, which the Jews would have been racist towards, the way he treats the lepers, the way he treats those who are on the outskirts, that in many ways Jesus finds himself often frustrated with those in power, the Pharisees, and really drawn towards helping those who aren't. So don't show favoritism. All people are created equal. But in Scripture, maybe, if you are going to, show favoritism to those who don't have. The last thing I, uh, or I already said that, but I, throughout this sermon, something that kept coming to mind for me was whenever I prepared for Dirk's funeral. And one of the things that was said over and over again was, Dirk treated everyone the same. No matter who you were, where you came from, whether you were special, whether you weren't special, whether you had money, whether you didn't have money, whether you were popular or not, he treated everyone the same. And whenever I talked about that at the funeral, one of the things I was trying to say over and over is, that is not because Dirk was some special, awesome person better than the rest of us. It's because he knew that we have a God who says you treat everyone the same. It's because when we choose to be image bearers of God, and when you choose to treat everyone as equal, 
And, and when Jason has a class where he's got some kids who don't have a lot of money that live in Laguna Park, and he's got some kids that live in the best neighborhood in town, he's not going to treat them any differently. And it's not because Jason's the greatest person in the world. It's because he's a follower of God. And that's what we get to do. When we choose to be image bearers of God, we sign up that God is a God of justice and he looks out at everyone and he's going to treat them the same no matter where they come from. And we can learn that lesson, not just from each other, or not just from God, but from each other in the way we live that out. If any of you would like to learn more about Jesus, if any of you are visiting or watching online and you want to give your life to him, we would love to talk to you about what it means to make Christ the Lord of your life. And if any of you have any prayer requests, something that's on your heart, a burden, elders are going to be standing at the exits while we stand and while we sing this song.